Well, we are taking a break from our series in the book of Genesis. And I was opening my Bible when I came up here to the book of Genesis because I've gotten so much into the habit of opening there. But we begin a new series uh, tonight. And if you've come in um, uh, before seven or so, you probably should have gotten a booklet. If you don't, um, you're welcome to get up and pick up one for yourself. It should be outside. Uh, that is a booklet. You won't need it immediately, but it will be helpful for you to, to have one as you follow what we are uh, starting tonight. Perhaps uh, you have heard of the country preacher who was looking for a job, and a local church interviewing committee ended up inviting this individual for an interview. And so they began by asking him, do you know much about the Bible? And the preacher said, oh, yes, I, I know the Bible through and through. But what's your favorite book in the Bible? And my favorite book is Mark, he said. And what's your favorite part of Mark? Well, I love the parables. Oh, which parable do you love the best? Which is your favorite one? Oh, he said, my favorite parable is the one about the Good Samaritan. Uh, can you share it with this committee? Uh, the preacher replied, yep, it goes this way, he said. Once there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have any money, and he met the queen of Sheba. She gave him a thousand talents of gold and a thousand changes of raiment, and he got into a chariot and drove furiously. He was driving so furiously that he drove under the juniper tree and his hair got caught in the limb of that tree. He hung there for many days and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves of bread and two fishes. Then one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair and he dropped and fell to the ground. But he got up and went on as it began to rain. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he hid himself in a cave, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now imagine, this is the, the parable of the great Samaritan. Then he went on until he met a servant who said, come, let us have supper together. But he made an excuse and said, no, I won't. I married a wife, and I cannot go. And so the servant went out to the highways and hedges, and compelled him to come in. After supper, he went on and came down to Jericho. When he got there, he looked up and saw that the old queen Zezebel sitting up high in the window, and she laughed at him. And so he said, throw her down out there. And they threw her down. And then they said, then he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times seven. And the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full besides women and children. They said, blessed are the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E, -E, makers. Now whose wife do you think she will be on the judgment day? Now, depending your, on your knowledge of the scriptures, you might laugh or cry after hearing that parable of the Good Samaritan. But truth be told, this is sadly the reality of the so-called evangelical world that we are a part of. We are living in the midst of a period which has the lowest biblical literacy. Even with all the many resources that are available at our disposal, you know, all the audio Bibles I have on my phone, at least four apps for different audio Bibles, just a click of a button or a tap away, with all the Bible translations at our fingertips, we continue to live in the midst of spiritual bankruptcy caused by biblical illiteracy. But don't get me wrong, I'm not just calling us to biblical literacy. We shouldn't just have knowledge about the Bible. I'm not just saying we should have more knowledge about the Bible. Perhaps some of you are aware there is a society called the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL, an organization that has about 8,000 scholars as its members. When I say scholars, I mean people who have had a PhD behind their name. It's the oldest and largest society that is devoted to investigation of the scriptures uh, from a variety of academic disciplines. Uh, there are folks in the organization 
uh, in this organization that know far more Greek and Hebrew than the average Christian will ever know. And yet, there is no transformation in their life. There's no change in the life of these scholars because they approach the Bible purely for academic reasons, merely to satisfy their curiosity. These folks are biblically literate. They have knowledge of the Bible, but that's not what we are called to do. Rather, I am calling us to a place where we know and understand the Bible more. Yes, we need to have knowledge of the scriptures, but also where we let the Spirit of God work in our hearts and minds so that we are transformed, not just informed, but transformed into the image of His Son on a daily basis, moment by moment. Now, if you're a part of the family of God, if you're a redeemed child of God, then your goal and my goal is not to remain a baby or an immature individual. No, it is to grow mature. Those who dream of playing in the major leagues don't get too comfortable in the minor leagues, right? No, they desire to learn all they can in the minor leagues so that they can continue to grow and perhaps participate in the major leagues. The same is true of a child of God. We want to grow, and we want to grow mature in Christ. And that is why we need a series such as the one that we begin tonight, a series on our doctrinal statement. I've titled our series, This We Believe, uh, this we believe. It is a study of our statement of faith, a statement of belief, or a doctrinal statement. And the word doctrine has its root in the Latin, uh, which means to teach. A doctrine is a set of instructions or teachings based on the principles drawn from the scriptures. The doctrinal statement that we will look at is itself based on a systematic arrangement of biblical texts and biblical thoughts. It is laid out in a way to help you and me understand what we believe and what we hold dear. Now I understand in a crowd such as this, perhaps not all of us come to this church, uh, but you ought to know what we hold dear here at this church. Uh, the statement, for example, that we will look at answers questions such as, what does countryside believe about the Bible? Is it a product of human ingenuity or is it God's word? Uh, what does countryside believe about God? Uh, don't get fooled just by the word church that is used in our name. Uh, do we believe that God is real? Has he revealed himself? Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, what has he done? Who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, what is his role? Uh, what does countryside believe about man? Is man good by nature and just commits some mistakes, some errors now and then, or is he sinful by nature? What does countryside believe is wrong with this world? Or what is wrong with me and, and you? If I am lost, how can I be saved? Or what does countryside believe about church? Is it a social club? Is it a church for the unchurched? Or is it a group of men and women saved by God through His Son for His glory? Uh, what does countryside believe about last things? What happens to us when we die? Is our Lord coming back? Will He come back to reign for a thousand years? These are some of the questions that our doctrinal statement answers for us. As I was preparing for this tonight, I looked at a number of doctrinal statements of a number of churches. Uh, most of the doctrinal statements were hardly 10 sentences on each of these areas. Uh, they don't want, uh, it looks like, they don't want people to know what they truly believe about God. Uh, they don't want really people to know about what they believe about the Bible, about marriage. Uh, is it any... Uh, surprise that many churches call themselves, we are the church for the unchurched. Now over the course of the rest of the summer, we'll take each topic and go deeper as we seek to understand what we truly believe and why we believe it. 
I really have three tasks before me tonight. Uh, the first one is to define what a doctrinal statement is. Uh, to provide a, a, a simple definition of this uh, phrase, doctrinal statement. Secondly, uh, why? Why sh in the world should we be studying a doctrinal statement? Of all the things that we could be studying together, why study the countryside Bible church's doctrinal statement? And then thirdly and finally, how are we planning to proceed with our studies? So I've put three Ds so that you can, and I can remember, define, defend, and develop. Uh, let's begin with the definition, understanding what it is. Uh, I just simply put, a doctrinal statement is a statement that is based on the Bible that summarizes and systematizes the scripture in its foundational areas. It's a statement that is based on the Bible that summarizes and systematizes the scripture in its foundational areas. Uh, this is what we believe here at Countryside Bible Church. Just in case you were wondering why this series is called This We Believe, it's because that's what we believe here. Now, before we go any further, let me dissect this statement on the screen a bit more. Uh, first of all, it is a statement. Uh, so it is something uh, that is provided in a written form, and it's itself based on the Bible. Now, the doctrinal statement is not the Bible, but it is based on or drawn from the Bible. And here at Countryside, leaders and members recognize that a doctrinal statement is but a fallible human attempt to summarize and systematize the riches of an infallible divine revelation, which is the Word of God. Let me repeat that. We recognize that it is but a fallible human attempt to summarize and systematize the riches of an infallible divine revelation, which is the Word of God. So first of all, it is a statement. Secondly, what is the statement doing? It is summarizing different subjects. Uh, to the question, what does countryside believe the Bible teaches us about God? The statement will cover important statements, uh, verses from the scriptures, and summarize those for us. Not only that, thirdly, it systematizes. That is, it puts the content in order, and puts even the topics in order. If you have your booklet with you, for example, you will notice that we will be studying uh, what the Bible is itself, or bibliology, before we get to studying about who God is. Now that is because Bible is God's special revelation. While we can know, as we look at the nature, if you, go, if you were to go outside, you look at the nature and you can recognize that God exists. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. Uh, Acts chapter 17 teaches the same thing. We can know God exists through nature, but we can know him in a very personal way as our Lord and Savior, that is in a special way through his word. And so therefore we begin with the Bible and then from there we move on in a very organized way as we look at other doctrines from the scriptures. And fourthly and finally, it does this in some foundational areas. Now we're not going to cover all the topics the Bible teaches on, but just the foundational ones. And those are listed in your booklet as well. Now, just as a side note, the different doctrines that, that we will study carefully spe specify our teaching position as, as well. Frequently you will read in the booklet, we believe and teach. We believe and teach. Uh, they specify then our teaching position and what the doctrinal statement then does is it provides a framework for everything that we do here at Countryside. Right from our elementary stages of, 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 our, of the life of our church in terms of our children, right up to what happens from the pulpit. We take God's word, we read God's word, we explain God's word, and we apply God's word. You know, a few years back, we used to have someone who was wanting to be a member of this church, and um, she had an issue with one of the doctrines that was taught. And so she said, every time uh, the pastor teaches from the pulpit about this doctrine, I'm going to get up and stand out. That's what she literally said. 
And so the individual, one of the elders who was interviewing her, he said, well, what if, you know, you come to our adult Sunday school, what if we teach the same thing there? She said, well, whenever you teach that, I'm going to get up and go out. And the elder then said to her, the fact is from every adult Sunday school, from the pulpit, right through our roots and youth ministry and from all the ministries that are a part of our church, the same thing is being taught. So you will be out for a long time. So it specifies our teaching position. But the doctrinal statement also provides an anchor to protect us against a theological drift. Uh, that's why anytime anything is added or taken away or edited in the doctrinal statement, it has to have an approval of two-thirds of the active adult members of this church. Uh, this is done so that if the elders were to drift away from what we believe together through the doctrinal statement based on God's word, the church is protected. And so anytime there is an addition or taking away or addition, uh, uh, the, the, the statement is edited, it needs the approval of two-thirds of active adult members of this church. It provides then for us an anchor to protect us from, from drifts that frequently take place in so many good churches. Uh, these are same, uh, the same topics that are studied under another heading. So I call it doctrinal statement, but frequently as you read books, uh, godly books, uh, another statement is um, um, shared, and it's, it's a statement, it's a phrase that is systematic theology. Uh, that's another phrase that is used for a doctrinal statement. Now, I may use the term doctrinal statement and systematic theology uh, interchangeably. So let me define what systematic theology is. Uh, systematic comes from the word system, and that systematic is a more common word. It often de describes something that is done according to a system uh, or a method. Uh, to be systematic is to present or formulate a coherent body of ideas or principles. That is what systematic is. And theology, well, it's a compound word that is made up of two words, uh, theos or theos meaning God and logos meaning study or word. Most literally then the word theology means words about God or a study of God. Here is how one um, philosopher and theologian who used to teach uh, systematic theology at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, John Frame, he would define systematic theology this way. He would say, uh, systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? And so you can take different topics. What, what does the Bible teach us about God? If you were to ask a question, what does the Bible teach about end times? And if you were to sit down and go through from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, it will take a long time for you to answer that question. And so what systematic theology does is it organizes the material for us so that if we have to ask the question, is it true that Jesus is going to come back again to take his people? If we have 10, 15, 20 texts that show us that, then it's much more easier to seek answers to our questions. And that is why we have systematic theology. Now, just so that we don't drift too much, uh, we have something called as classifications of theology, as you'll hear these terms as you get into um, systematic theology. Uh, here are some phrases that you will hear frequently. Uh, one is biblical theology. Uh, what biblical theology means is how has a particular topic or theme developed through the scriptures? So, for example, what was the Old Testament view of salvation? Is it consistent with the New Testament? What does the New Testament add or, or build on when it talks about salvation? Uh, that's what biblical theology does. Within scriptures, how has that doctrine developed? Then there is historical theology. Here the purpose is to trace the historical origins of the doctrines of the church and trace their subsequent changes and see how that developed. Uh, many people think that Martin Luther was the one who invented the, uh, the doctrine of justification. No, he didn't invent it, he just discovered it. It always existed, 
even as the New Testament canon was, was closed since then. And so it's not, uh, so understanding historical theology helps us understand how the doctrine developed. Then there is a dogmatic theology. The word dogma really means that which is held as an opinion. How the various creeds developed through the centuries. That's what dogmatic theology is. Then there is contemporary theology. Uh, these are theological positions held in the postmodern world. For example, we think of the liberal theology or evangelical theology or charismatic theology. Uh, those all fall under contemporary theology. Then there is practical theology. It's essentially study of practical issues of Christian living. And then finally is systematic theology, which is what we'll spend most of this summer on. Now within systematic theology, if you were to look at the index of your booklets, uh, you'll find many, many topics. Uh, for example, our first topic is going to be bibliology. Uh, which is the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, when, when we sit down and study and read this book, is this like any other fic work of fiction or non-fiction that you pick up from the library? Uh, what, when we say these are Holy Scriptures or this is God's Word, what do we mean by that? Uh, how do we receive it? Uh, when did we receive it? What do we believe about the Bible? Why do we believe what we believe? That's what we will cover in Bibliology, which is the session, the two sessions that follow next, uh, starting next week. Then there is theology proper, which is doctrine of God. What do we believe about God? Uh, where did God come from? If God exists, and he does, then what are his attributes, his characteristics? Uh, does he alone possess it, or does he share some with his creatures? What do we believe about that? Is there just one God or are there more gods than one? Then we come to Christology or the doctrine of Christ. Um, what does the Bible teach about Jesus Christ? Uh, did he exist before he showed up as a vulnerable baby 2,000 years back? Why did he come to this earth? Did he accomplish his purpose? How do we know that? What are his plans for the future? All of those things will be covered under Christology. Then there is pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, who is the Holy Spirit? Is he a force? Uh, is he an inanimate person? What can we know from the Bible about the Holy Spirit? What is the role that he plays? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then one that I skipped before is anthropology. Another word that is used along with anthropology is the word hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin. Anthropology is the doctrine of man. What is the Bible's view of man? Is man inherently good or is he inherently bad? Why do people die? Uh, what happens after they die? Why are they here on earth? What is the purpose of human beings on the earth? Uh, those are some questions that we will deal with when we think of the doctrine of man. Then there is soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. What does the Bible teach about salvation? Can I be saved by my own efforts? What, why does someone else need to save me? Where does the process begin? What does it mean to be saved? Why does how I live matter after I'm saved? I'm going to heaven anyway. What does the Bible have to say about that? All of those things will be doctrine of salvation. Then there is doctrine of the church. What does the Bible have to say about what a church is? Why cannot I just gather with my Christian family at home and call it a church? How am I connected or not connected with churches in the area or throughout the world? Why are there elders and leaders in the church? What is their role? Or what is my role when it comes to elders and leaders in the church? What does the Bible teach about church discipline? Uh, what is the mission of the church? All of those questions will be considered under ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Then there is angelology or demonology, which is the doctrine of angels or demons. Do I have a personal angel? Do you? What does the Bible have to say about angels? Who is Satan? What is his origin? Who are demons? What is their role? Are some of us tasked with removing demons? 
We will study that under angelology. And then finally, I always get stuck here, but doctrine of last things. What does the Bible teach about the last things? Uh, what is the next event in the life of a believer? Why should I study the doctrine of last things? What will happen or will not happen? All of those things are so vitally important. Do you see how we are moving from just, you know, some basic things about the Christian world which are important to thinking about these things which form the very core of what you and I believe? Obviously, we're talking about subjects that a lot more could be said. Uh, seminary students will tell you that they took one whole session on each of these topics. And so we are not going to be able to cover everything. And my goal is not to say everything that can be said about the subject, but to give us enough to whet our appetite for, for more. So that you can take what you're learning here and you can keep progressing in your walk with the Lord. That's what we will plan to do. So that brings us then to an apologia of the doctrinal statement. What do I mean by that? A defense, really. Why do we need to be doing this? Why, need to, why, why do we need to spend time studying our doctrinal statement? Uh, you know, in a group such as this, which is primarily a singles group, why not talk about some of the more contemporary issues, uh, dating and, and marriage? I'm glad you asked. These are all legitimate questions, and I hope through the course of the next three months to provide good answers for those questions. But why do we need to study? That's brought brings us to the second D, which is defense. I have a few reasons for us to consider as we think of why to study. One is it helps us to be a good theologian. It helps you and me to be, be a good theologian. Now, whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, you're already a theologian. You're already thinking about these things. If you believe that the Bible is God's word, if you believe the, or not God's word, if you believe the God of the Bible speaks truth whenever he speaks, uh, if you believe Jesus Christ is God, that he came into this world to give his life as a ransom for you, then do you realize how many doctrines are packed into all that I have just stated? A lot. So the question is not whether you are into theology, that is already settled. The question is not whether you are a theologian. The question is, are you a good one? And so my goal and hope through this series is we visit these great themes from the Bible that you will on a moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year basis, keep getting better at understanding and applying God's word. We all need to desire to be mature believers. We all need to think in terms of how can I do what I'm doing better? How can I kill the sins in my life and continue to work on the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians? And really the scriptures talk about throughout God's word. And so it helps you be a good theologian. Secondly, it helps you explain what you believe. See, as a result of our study together, Christians, uh, my hope is that our believers are able to have a clear understanding about the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. And the Bible comes to us in varied forms, in different genres. If you were just to open your Bible, look at the index, uh, there we have uh, history and poetry and prophecy and wisdom literature. And we have letters that were written by apostles to the churches you will notice that the Bible was not written in a doctrinal outline format. No, hence it's important to systematize the parts of the Bible to understand the doctrinal emphasis of the entire Bible. Why should we aim to do this? Because the God that we believe in is a God of structure and order. Uh, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, he would say to the Corinthians, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And because it is in order, you are able to understand and explain what you believe. As you think of these things in an orderly way, you are able to understand them, and then you are able to explain them to others. 
Thirdly, it helps you defend what you believe. Uh, you know, doctrinal statement or a systematic theology enables us as a Christian to defend beliefs rationally against opponent, opponents and antagonists to the faith. Now, that's not something new. Early in the Christian church, followers of Christ used their systematized beliefs to regularly address opponents and unbelievers. Uh, this is perhaps even more important today uh, with the emergence of humanism and communism and cults and Eastern religions. Now, to say that the Bible is under constant attack is to really put it lightly. If you have lived for any number of years, every year in December or in early March or April, we are told by the media that there is this new research uh, that shows that the Bible is false and that Christianity is untrue. And at best, it is based on faith that does not need any evidence. Every year. I've been in this country for 18 years. Uh, the media hasn't missed even a single year telling me uh, some new information that is out there that will destroy Christianity. These have all come and they have gone. And so understanding our doctrines or a study of systematic theology will help us defend what we believe against the attacks that come against us. And so you and I need to understand and get a good firm grasp on these things to truly understand what you believe and then be in a position to explain and defend it to others. Imagine someone comes to you and says, the Bible never says that Jesus Christ is God. And if you were able to open from the scriptures and say, look, John 10, 30. Uh, look, 8, John 8, 58. Uh, look at Jude. Look at Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 1. That's where we need to get to if someone asks us a question about these things, about the foundational things. And so it helps you defend what you believe. It helps you mature in what you believe. As many of you know, the name of our group comes from Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, every woman, complete in Christ. Mature in Christ. If you think you are already mature, come alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. Help them to be mature as well. Our goal is to help you become mature in Christ. And the way we become mature in Christ is to be well grounded in God's word ourselves. A systematic theology is then an assertion of Christian truth. And these same truths are essential in the maturity of Christians. Isn't it Paul writing to Timothy, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be adequate and equipped for every good work. As you become familiar and well-versed with these themes, you begin to develop an understanding uh, of truth and falsehood. You begin to distinguish that which is right from that which is wrong. You begin to develop a philosophy, a, a worldview that helps you quickly understand and refute false claims against scriptures and affirm the truth claims. And when you do that, you're becoming a mature follower of Christ. Peter Enns, also a theologian himself, he writes, many Christians have faithfully attended church services for decades and yet have little understanding of the major doctrines of the Christian faith. Yet a knowledge of correct doctrine is important in Christian maturity. Moreover, it protects the believer from error. Well put. So it helps you mature in what you believe. Fifthly, it is exemplified for us in the New Testament. It is exemplified for us in the New Testament. I want to highlight two examples for us. Our Lord himself. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24.
Remember, this is an incidence that is recorded for us that takes place after our Lord has been, ris- has been raised from the dead. He's resurrected. And uh, there are these two um, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're on their way to Emmaus. They are surprised and shocked at what they've been hearing. And they are also disappointed to some extent. And let's pick up in verse 25. Here is Jesus who comes alongside these two disciples. Perhaps it's a couple. We're not sure, but most likely. Um, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter? Was it not necessary for the Christ, rather, to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then... Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He just opened the Old Testament to them and explained to them what it said about the Messiah that was to come. You know, this is one of those events I would, and I suspect many of you would love to visit in the past if you were to be able to go to the past, uh, to listen to our Lord himself, exposit the scriptures and teach on the great theme of Christology and the biblical theology of the Messiah. And so our Lord himself exemplifies or provides an example for us as he walks these disciples through the Old Testament belief about who Christ was. But it's not only our Lord which is most important and we can rest our case there, it's also exemplified in the life of Paul, one of the most premier apostles. You know, Paul's writings make it clear that doctrine is foundational to Christian maturity. In as much as Paul normally builds a doctrinal foundation in his epistles, if you were to read his epistles, you will, uh, as you follow him, you will realize that the first half is focused on doctrines and the last half is focused on practice. Uh, you see that, uh, you know, if you were here with us as we studied the the, uh, the letter of to Romans, we finished that a couple of years back. But from chapter 1 to chapter 11, Paul is, um, you know, t- taking us through great themes that are connected with, uh, with justification and salvation and sanctification and election and all of that. But beginning from chapter 12, his tone suddenly changes and the content changes. It changes from doctrine to practice. So first 11 chapters, he's dedicated himself to explaining doctrinal things. And when he comes to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, in light of all I have said in the first 11 chapters, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which uh, which is your spiritual service of worship. His letters follow the format of first doctrine, and then practice. First orthodoxy and then orthopraxy, as theologians will put it. He begins to tell us how what we believe should impact how we live, how the gospel that we believe is lived out on a daily basis. You cannot live correctly unless you know what you believe. Your practice then is dependent on your doctrine. You will practice eventually what you believe in your heart to be true. Sixthly and finally, it is demanded and commanded by the scriptures. It is demanded and commanded by the scriptures. You know, Christianity is based on a set of doctrines. The Bible and specifically the New Testament regularly calls us to defend, to proclaim, to pass on a body of doctrine. I'm going to look with you. I've mentioned the the verses up there, but 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The word traditions has some baggage. Uh, You know, we immediately think of the word and we think of Roman Catholic Church tradition. Uh, There the word is used to mean whatever, biblical and extra-biblical, that is passed down or handed down. But that's not how Paul uses the word here. And notice here, he qualifies the word by telling us what the traditions were. They were a body of truth that was taught 
whether by word or mouth or by a letter. The traditions then were nothing more than what the apostles taught these churches. These were statements about God and about the scripture that they had, which is the Old Testament, which are recorded for us in the word of God. In Jude, our Lord's half-brother, in Jude 3, Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, what was this faith? It was a body of doctrines. It was a collection of beliefs that was taught and that was passed down. Contend earnestly for the faith. There is this body of truth. There is this faith then that was given. But uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy as we walk through some texts as we close our time together. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's letter to, to Timothy, a young pastor. And notice verse 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Go down to chapter 6 and look at verse 20. <clears throat> he writes, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter, and the opposing arguments of what is falsely ca called knowledge. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Go down to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That is verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Go down to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. As he encourages this young pastor and anyone who is a follower of Christ involved in studying and reading his word, he says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, and instruction. What an amazing charge this is. Preach the word. Not my words. Not just Paul's words. No, God's word. You know, I don't see my role here as one to entertain you or to make you feel good about yourself every time you come. No. I see my role as one who spends time week in, week in and week out studying and understanding God's word and then teaching that word to you, contending for the faith, for the sound doctrine. What then is your role? Your role is one, of course, of a, being a Berean, to check my words against the words of the scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 17. But not only that, you take what you have learned and you pass it on to others that God brings in your way. Go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Of course, the context is that Paul is writing to a preacher, to a, to a pastor. But I think there are implications for all of us. Notice what he says. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, God, through the course of your life, will bring many individuals in your life. You are to take what you are learning, both here and from the pulpit every Sunday morning, and you, you see your role as one who is passing along it to others who will then pass it to the next generation. You know, we just didn't drop from heaven in this 21st century. No, we stand on the shoulders of those who have been faithful for thousands of years, faithful men and women of God. In many ways, I think of the doctrinal statement as something pointing to the fence that we are all enclosed in. Knowing and understanding our doctrinal statement will help us understand the importance of boundaries. It'll tell you there are some things you can disagree on 
and still be a part of the same church. It will tell you that if you hold to a view that is alien to the doctrinal statement uh, that is sometimes called as heresy, then you have crossed the line. Now what are those boundaries? That's what we will learn and study in the doctrinal statement. Uh, that then brings us to the final section, how? How will we study this doctrinal statement? First of all, let me point you to some tools that we will have. First of all, it's the statement itself. Uh, this is what we are looking at closely. So we will need a copy of a statement which is provided for you in the booklets that you have already. If you don't have your booklet handy, then you can also look up online on the Countryside website for our doctrinal statement. But the, in the booklet, you will see the statement neatly divided into dif different sections. So we'll need our doctrinal statement, but we'll also need scriptures because that's what it is based on. We will use our Bibles to study. Ultimately, the statement is put together by fallible men, but the Bible is God's word. It's infallible and inerrant. If God has revealed himself, and he has, and if that self-revelation is accurately encoded in the 66 books of the scripture, and it is, then the scriptures are the prim primary source of man, for man's knowledge of God, right? So we'll need scripture. Thirdly, we'll need to use our reasoning skills. Now, when you hear that word, don't be alarmed, because when I use the word reason, I do not mean the philosophical worldview that is known as rationalism, which stresses reason as the means of determining truth. And the implication there is that whatever cannot be supported by human reason is to be discarded as untrue. That's not what I'm referring to when I say reason. When I use the word reason, I mean the rational faculty that God has given us to learn and understand what is the Bible. God has given us this capacity and God expects us to use this capacity. He himself says, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Repeatedly, if you were to read, read Acts in one sitting, you will observe uh, that reasoning and persuasion is used by Paul as he visits these different synagogues. Our Lord would also admonish the religious leaders and say, haven't you read? Haven't you read? Obviously, it means haven't you read and do you not understand what you have read? Haven't you used your, used your mind? Uh, you can look up an example that we have, Acts chapter 17, as Paul uses this in the life of the Greeks. And then finally, the method. What, 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 what is the method that we will follow? Well, we plan to familiarize ourselves with the particular topic by reading the doctrinal statement. And so let me encourage you as you come every Wednesday uh, to prepare yourselves by reading that statement. I have checked and timed myself. I think the most time that I needed was for the one on salvation, but most of the others could be read within five to 10 minutes, depending on your speed, of course. And so let me encourage you to read before you come. The next week we'll be dealing with the Holy Scriptures. And so you might want to read that section. It takes less than three minutes to be able to read that. And then I'll walk us through the doctrine as it is and why it is important and then the implications for the, of that doctrine for our life. Because we just don't want to fill ourselves with knowledge and new words that we will learn. But we want to use that in our life and let it impact us and how we live. And then when we get into our small groups, We'll spend time responding to questions. Uh, those questions are also found in your booklets. Uh, this will allow us to vocalize and you know, verbalize our, our thoughts. And finally, we want to let God's word impact and challenge us to live godly lives. And therefore, at the end of each section, there is a memory verse. And uh, some of us are convinced that we can never memorize anything. But let me encourage you to remain open to the possibility that there are ways in which you can commit things to memory. You know, you, you'll be surprised at the things that you have memorized. Other things that you have memorized, but you're not able to memorize scriptures. Uh, I'd be happy to sit with you to talk through some things that I have used in my own process of memorizing scriptures. 
So don't, don't be discouraged, but be encouraged and find out from others how they are and memorizing scripture. It's amazing how our minds can store relatively trivial information, but when it comes to God's word, you always find resistance in and within us. You know, what does the psalmist say? Psalm 119 verse 11, your word have I treasured in my heart, have I hid in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. Shouldn't that be our cry and goal? Lord, I want to store your word in my heart because I do not want to sin against you. And then Psalm 119, verse 97, which I think is the key verse in that chapter. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. May that be true of each one of us as we get into this series. Let me close our time in a word of prayer, and then I'll have some instructions for us. Father, thank you for these reminders from your word. Although this wasn't an exposition of a text, Lord, we are thankful that we could get some preliminary thoughts on the table as we understand why we are doing this. How can we do this? What, what, what are we trying to do at the end of the day? Lord, we are thankful that we could spend a few minutes thinking about those things. Lord, our desire and the call of our heart is the same as the psalmist. Lord, help us to store your word in our hearts that we would not sin against you. How can a young man, a young woman keep his or her way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And that is our prayer as well, Lord. We want to keep your word. We want to read your word. We want to understand your word. We want to explain your word. And we want to apply your word in our lives. Help us to do just that. As we get into our small group, we pray that you would be um, honored and exalted through our time together now. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.